0: Very good morning to you all. If you would, please take your Bible. And turn with me to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 8. We'll be reading Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Romans 8, 14 to 17. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the living word of the living God. Let us pray. Our Father who's in heaven, as we come into your presence this morning, as we open your word this morning, as we approach your throne this morning, We pray for brokenness, because you do not despise a broken spirit and a contrite heart. We pray that you would help us to shut out the world, the distractions, the voices in our head and in our heart, which are clamoring for our attention. You would help us to shut our mouths and to receive your word for what it is not the word of man, but the word of God. So, Lord, as we open your word this morning, the prayer of our hearts is that you would speak, O Lord, speak to us through your word. We pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen. Without a doubt, Amy Carmichael, is one of the greatest missionaries in the annals of church history. In 1895, as a single woman at the age of 33, Amy set sail from Northern Ireland to India. She would remain there over the next 56 years of her life until her death. During her ministry, Amy was known as the rescuer of India's children because she would rescue and adopt Children out of the darkness of the Indian jungles. Here's how one article describes how Amy began this ministry of rescue and adoption. Since the sixth century in India, little girls, sometimes even babies, were dedicated to the Hindu gods and forced to live in Hindu temples. Their parents were told that if they gave up their little girls, they would receive favor from the gods. In reality, This meant their little girls were groomed to be the sex slaves of the Brahmin priests. It all started for Amy when a little girl named Prina was dedicated to the Hindu gods at the age of seven. Prina was taken from her home, forced to live in the temple, and placed under the care of a temple woman. This temple woman taught Prina how to sing and dance to make her more desirable to the Hindu priests. But Prina was too young and too innocent to know what it meant to be married to the god. She only longed to be back with her mother. and So she escaped. She made the two-day journey back home. But as soon as she arrived home, right on her heels was the wicked temple woman who demanded her back. And Prina clung to her mother wrapped her arms around her mother, and begged her not to be sent back. The wicked temple woman threatened wrath from the gods. And Prina, Prina's mother, feared the gods, unloosed her daughter's clinging arms, and handed her back over to the temple. As punishment for escaping, Prina's hands were branded with a red-hot iron. But Prina was determined. She escaped again. And this time, she knew she was too smart to go back to her hometown. She was too smart to go back to her mother, and so she went to a different town. Providentially, Amy happened to be traveling through that town, and she met Prina the next morning. Prina described her first meeting with Amy. Prina said, Our precious am I. Amai means true mother in Tamil, was having her morning chota. When she saw me, the first thing she did was to put me on her lap and kiss me. I thought, my mother used to put me on her lap and kiss me. Who is this person who kisses me like my mother? From that day, she became my mother, body and soul. At Amy Carmichael's gravesite where she is buried in India, it is written on her tombstone, Amai, which means true mother. Brethren, when we hear this powerful story of the great, vast, adopting love of Amy Carmichael, I believe that it should remind us of something else. It should remind us of what motivated Amy's great, vast, adopting love in the first place. I submit to you that it should remind us of God's great, vast, adopting love for us from the slavery of sin. It should remind us of our status as adopted children of God. I can think of perhaps no more pervasive and popular doctrinal error in America today than the belief that everybody is a child of God. Everybody, whether you're a believer or not a believer, believes himself to be a child of God. But this is simply not true. The Bible says that this is not true. In fact, Jesus says quite the opposite. In John 8, 41, when some unbelievers claim that we have one father, God, Jesus says in response to them in John eight forty four, you are of your father, the devil. That's pretty straightforward. Not all people have God as father. So if not all people have God as father, then who does have God as father? Who is a child of God? Galatians 3.26 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. John 1, 12 and 13 says, To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Bible says very clearly that in order for you to become a child of God, you must believe in Jesus Christ. In order for you to be a child of God, you must be a Christian. So let's make very clear, right at the outset, right at the beginning, The right to be called a child of God is reserved for the Christian alone. And if only Christians are truly adopted children of God, and so it follows that the benefits of adoption are reserved for the Christian alone. And that's what the Apostle Paul is seeking to unpack for us here this morning. Adoption is the main theme of our passage. It comes up over and over and over again in these verses. Sons of God, verse 14. Adoption as sons, verse 15. Children of God, verse 16. Children and heirs, verse 17. Adoption is mentioned in all four verses. Adoption here is seen as a mountain peak of the greatness of God's love. In fact, it is so great That the entire Godhead, the entire Trinity, is intimately involved in the reality and the experience of adoption. So what I'd like us to see this morning in our passage is four Trinitarian benefits of adoption. These are four Trinitarian blessings of being called a child of God. First... God's adopted children are led by the Spirit. God's adopted children are led by the Spirit. Look at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Adoption is a work of the Spirit's ministry. We are led by the Spirit. Notice the passive voice. The Spirit leads. We are being led. We don't lead the Spirit. We follow the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit, according to the Apostle, is a sign, a mark, a benefit, a blessing of adoption. Only those who are adopted by the Spirit are children of God. Only those who are led by the Spirit are children of God. And all those who are children of God are led by the Spirit. Every single child of God is led by the Spirit. It's one of the blessings of adoption. But what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, the answer to this question is found in the little word for. At the beginning of verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit. The word for points backwards to verse 13. So verse 13 then gives the basis and explanation for verse 14. So we could read it like this. Romans eight thirteen. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And on this basis... Because for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's a parallelism going on here. So put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit in verse 13 is explained by, it is parallel to, being led by the Spirit in verse 14. The phrase, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, is clarified by the phrase, led by the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit is to kill sin by the Spirit. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. In this verse, to be led by the Spirit is not some subjective experience like being led to the right job, being led to the right school, being led to the right spouse. In this verse, to be led by the Spirit is is a matter of objective obedience. All those who are led by the Spirit kill the deeds of the flesh. All those who are led by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. When you kill sin, you are being led by the Spirit. John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, are you killing sin, or are you courting it? Are you putting sin to death, or are you playing with it? Are you killing sin, or is sin killing you? Brothers and sisters, sin is crouching at the door, waiting to devour you. Will you let it, or will you kill it? To be led by the Spirit is to kill sin by the Spirit. The evidence of your sonship is, do you kill sin in your life? All children of God are led by the Spirit to kill sin in their lives. It is true that Christians often struggle with assurance of salvation. Christians often struggle to know that they are a child of God. And do you know when some Christians, not all Christians, but some Christians struggle to know that they are a child of God? When they live unrepentantly in their sins. There's an unbreakable chain in these verses, and it goes something like this. To be led by the Spirit is to kill sin by the Spirit, which shows that you are a child of God. Killing sin shows you are led by the Spirit, which shows that you are a child of God. And some Christians forfeit the subjective assurance of salvation because they fail to follow the Spirit in killing sin in their lives. Some Christians, when they fail to kill sin, they forfeit the assurance of salvation, not the reality Not the objective truth of their salvation, but the subjective experience of their salvation when they fail to kill sin in their life. Brethren, assurance of salvation cannot come when you are resisting the Spirit, or quenching the Spirit, or grieving the Spirit. Assurance of salvation comes when you are being led by the Spirit. Second Trinitarian benefit of adoption is God's adopted children relate to God as father. God's adopted children relate to God as father. Look at verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. You say, okay, okay, I understand that the Spirit shows me that I am a child of God by leading me to kill sin in my life. I understand that. But then how does the Spirit lead me to kill sin in my life? How does the Spirit lead me? Answer, not by fear. Not by fear. This is an obedience not out of fear, but out of love. Paul says in verse 15, we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear. Now there is a place for godly fear in your Christian lives, but not this kind of fear. Not this kind of fear. This is the kind of fear that you had before you were a Christian. This is the fear of condemnation, the fear of judgment. At one point, before we were saved, we did have a spirit of slavery leading to fear. Because we were enslaved to sin. Romans 6.17 says, before Christ, you were slaves of sin. You couldn't do anything but sin, and you lived in the fear of the wrath of God. You lived in the fear of the judgment of God. You were afraid of God, the judge. Be honest with yourself, oh Christian. Do you ever experience a spirit of slavery leading to fear again? Do you ever feel like no matter how hard you try in your Christian walk to honor God, that God is just waiting to zap you? That he's just going to get you in the end? That every time you do something, he's just constantly displeased with you, as if you could never please him? Do you ever feel like when you have trials in your life, perhaps they're just piled one on top of another, trial after trial after trial, you think, oh, here we go again. God just has it out for me. I'm afraid of what he's going to do to me next. Do you ever feel that? you ever experienced this kind of fear, then first I encourage you to get your doctrine of justification deeply rooted. Get your doctrine of justification deeply rooted. After all, that's what this chapter is about, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Brethren, get the gospel deeply rooted. Get justification deeply rooted. Get it deeply rooted that you will never face the wrath of God. Get it deeply rooted that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. O Christian, O those who are in Christ, thou shalt not fear the wrath of Almighty God. But Brethren, Don't stop at justification. Because God doesn't stop at justification. God goes a step beyond justification. He adopts us into his family. Verse 15 says, we have received the spirit of adoption. And I actually believe the NASB should have capitalized the word spirit in verse 15 because I believe that it is referring to the Holy Spirit. The parallel passage in Galatians 4.6 makes this clear. So your spirit of slavery has been replaced by the Holy Spirit who tells you of your adoption. And this is how the Spirit leads us to kill sin. The Spirit reminds us. The Spirit tells us. The Spirit testifies to us that we are children of God. The Spirit motivates us to kill sin by reminding us of a new nature, a new family, a new status. We are motivated to kill sin because we want to honor the Father, because we love the Father. The Spirit leads us not by fear, but by love. Not by slavery, but by affection. Not by condemnation, but by intimacy. In our Christian walk, we must move beyond justification to adoption. If you only think of justification, then you will only think of God as judge. Now, is God judge and are we plaintiff? Yes. Is God creator and are we creatures? Yes. Is God master, and are we slaves? Yes. Is God king, and are we subjects? Yes. But is God father, and are we children? Yes, a hundred times yes. Oh, Christian, you are no longer a slave to sin, but a child of God. You are no longer a criminal, but a son and a daughter of God. We must move beyond justification to adoption. J.I. Packer says this adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. The two ideas are distinct, and adoption is the more exalted. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. This is simply profound. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. As most of you know, my wife Olivia is a pediatrician. She used to work as a bone marrow transplant hospitalist in a pediatric hospital. We're talking about very, very sick children who are getting bone marrow transplants. One day, she was getting ready to leave work when she gets a page from the nurse. The nurse says, Doctor, this patient is behaving strangely. Olivia says, What do you mean strangely? She says, He's limp. Olivia says, I'll be right there. So Olivia goes to see a seven-year-old boy with sickle cell disease who was not arousable. He just wasn't waking up. He wasn't responding at all. And all of a sudden, the seven-year-old boy starts to have a seizure. He starts seizing, at which point the Code Blue is called. The family was in the room at the time, and Mom took the older brother outside of the room. But Dad, Dad stayed in the room. And the family were Christians. Throughout the whole ordeal, Dad stayed in the room, and he kept speaking to his son, his seven-year-old boy, even if he wasn't sure that his son could hear him. He was speaking to his son warmly and tenderly, calmly. He was saying, son, God is in control. We're here with you now, son. They're going to take some blood blood from you. There's just a little poke. You're going to be okay because God is in control. Son, they're just taking your blood pressure now. It's just going to be a little squeeze on your arm. But son, everything's going to be okay because God is in control. Son, I'm here with you now. You're going to be okay. God is in control. Thankfully, the little boy survived the code. Do you sense the love of a father for his child? Do you sense the closeness and the affection and the compassion of a father for his child? Brothers and sisters, that is now how God relates to you. If you only think of God as a stern, cold, distant judge waiting to zap you, then you need to better grasp the adopting grace of God. God warmly, tenderly cares for you as his own child. third trinitarian benefit of adoption is god's adopted children have access to the father god's adopted children have access to the father verses 15 and 16 for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out abba father The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The glorious truth is that now that we are adopted into the family of God, we have access to God. We have access to the very God of the universe. And our access is built on two aspects. The objective truth of verse 16 and the subjective truth of verse 15. In verse 16, objectively, the spirit testifies with our spirit. Deuteronomy 19.15, the law says that any legal matter must be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Even more, Roman law required at least two witnesses for an adoption to become legal. And so in Jewish law and in Roman law, They both required two witnesses for an adoption to become legal. And here we have our two witnesses. The Holy Spirit and our spirit. This is a joint witness. This is a joint testimony. The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit in the divine courtroom, in the courtroom of heaven, that we are children of God. In the courtroom of heaven, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit objectively to give us legal confirmation of our adoption into the family of God. But there is more in this passage than just objective legal transaction. There is also the subjective experience of our everyday life. Paul says in verse 15, the Holy Spirit causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. To cry is one of the most frequent terms used in scripture for prayer. It is used over 40 times in the book of Psalms to describe the psalmist crying out to God in prayer. To cry out is to pray to God. It is to speak to God. And we can now approach the throne not as a plaintiff before a judge, but as a child before his father. And we can cry out, Abba, Father. The word Abba or Abba would have been shocking for a Jew to hear. In fact, it would be shocking for any other religion in the world. No other religion in the world would ever dare to call their God Abba. No Jew would have ever called God Abba. It would have been unthinkable. But it was not unthinkable for Jesus, because Jesus is the Son of God. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus calls out to God, Abba, Father. Brothers and sisters, we get to call God the same thing that Jesus called God, Abba, Father. Father. Brothers and sisters, you can now come into the presence of the great I am, holy, majestic, transcendent, high and lifted up, singular God of the universe, and you can call him Abba. Abba. Abba is an Aramaic term, which means Papa or Daddy. In fact, if you go to the Middle East today, you will still hear this term being used. One of my friends who's a missionary in the Middle East told me the story of going to the marketplace and seeing little children, little children crying out to their father, "Apa, Appa, Appa, apa." In fact, it's the same in many languages. In Mandarin, it is Papa. In Korean, apparently, it's similar, Appa. I asked my French... Uh, I asked my wife what it is in French, and she said that it's papa. Similar, appa, papa. In America, you can still hear infants or small children using this term, papa, papa, papa. I can see some of you starting to squirm in your seats and getting sweaty. It's okay, we have now done speaking in tongues. But (laughs) (laughs) the tongues have now ceased. Tongues have ceased. So... (laughs) what do you think these words are? They're the same word. Why is it so universal? Why is it so widespread? Because it's a primitive word. It's an infantile word. It's one of the first words out of the mouth of every baby across the world, across all time, across all cultures, right after the word mama. It's not a term an older child would use. It's a term a very small child, a baby, would use. One author explains it like this. An eight-year-old Aramaic-speaking child did not speak this word. It's an infant. It's primal. It's instinctive. Why would Paul deliberately make reference to the most primal, earliest form of language? Because an eight-year-old is still calculating. An eight-year-old says, I want daddy to do this or that. I know. I'll be cute. But what infants want when they say Abba is they just want Abba. Infants want to grab the neck. Infants want to come and get close to the face. What Paul is saying is when you become a Christian, there is a kind of language toward God that you didn't have before. Without being a Christian, you can ask God for things, Without being a Christian, you can have the language of duty. I need to do this or that to be on God's side. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, there's a new kind of prayer. It's primal. It's instinctive. It's a desire just for God himself. You're just after him. You're after his face. You're after the embrace. You're after the nearness itself. The earliest language we have is the language of wonder. and This was illustrated to me very well when a few years ago we had a toddler and an infant in our home. When we would eat cake or candy or ice cream, my two-year-old would climb up into my lap. And she would say, Dada, can I have some more? And she would really milk it big, cute eyes and this big smile. But then when my, my six-month-old was lying in the infant gym on the ground and I would sit down next to her, she would reach out for me and she would say, Papa, Papa, Papa. Or if you place the uh, emphasis on the other syllable, Apa, Appa, Appa, Appa. She would reach out for me. She didn't want anything from me. She just wanted me. She wanted me to pick her up and hold her. She wanted to get close to my face. She wanted to grab the neck. She wanted to be close to me. She she would reach out for me and cry out, Abba, Abba, Abba. I'd pick her up, hold her in my arms, and she'd reach her hand out, my face right here, and then she would go, (laughs) sink her nails right into my skin, and then laugh, ha, ha, ha. Brothers, sisters, the point is, when we cry, Abba, Father, we're not trying to get God to do something for us. We just want God. We just want to be close to God. We just want to be near God. Let me ask you this, O oh believer, how is your prayer life different from an unbeliever? Oh Christian, how is your prayer life different From a non-Christian. Do you pray like a non-Christian? Unbelievers pray. If you don't think unbelievers pray, you're kidding yourself. Unbelievers can pray. Unbelievers ask God for things all the time. And unbelievers can ask God for many good things. They can ask God for blessing, for wisdom, for strength in trial. They can ask God for many good things. Anyone can ask God God for things in prayer. But do you know what an unbeliever does not do? An unbeliever does not pray just to be close to God, just to get near to God, just to seek God's face, just to seek the embrace, just to grab the neck. So I ask you this morning, how is your prayer life different from an unbeliever? Do you just want God to do things for you? Do you just ask for all the gifts and never seek the giver? Brethren, when we cry out, Abba, Father, let us seek the face of God. Let us seek the nearness of God. Let us have the language of wonder. The fourth and last Trinitarian benefit of adoption is God's adopted children are heirs with the Son. God's adopted children are heirs with the Son, verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. This verse points to an aspect of our adoption that is still yet future. An heir is someone who owns and waits for an inheritance. And as children of God, as sons of God, we will inherit the entire kingdom of God, all the glories of heaven, all the blessings of heaven, all the treasures of heaven, and we will inherit God himself. He is our portion and inheritance forever. And if I could actually just speak to the sisters here for a moment, just speak to the sisters just briefly. Brothers, it's okay if you listen. Some of you sisters might be reading this text and seeing, hmm, it says sons of God, sons of God. Well, here we go again. This is favoring sons over daughters. This is favoring males over females. This is favoring boys over girls. And I know for a fact that some of you sisters have grown up in families where you felt like the sons, had more rights and privileges than you. That you felt the sons were treated better than you. And actually in the ancient world, secular ancient world of ancient Rome and ancient Israel, you're not too far off. The sons had more rights and privileges than the daughters. The sons were the heirs of the estates, not the daughters. And so when you read, sisters, sons of God, you might be tempted to think that Paul is excluding the sisters. But please do not misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Paul is actually saying, with God as your father, you sisters will be treated with all the privileges of sonship. How do I know that? Because Paul changes from talking about sons to children. Paul pivots from talking about sons to all of God's children, including you sisters. Paul is not excluding the sisters. He is telling the sisters that you will be treated equally as the brothers. Oh, sisters, oh, daughter of the great God of of heaven, you sisters, you have all the rights and privileges of sonship. You have all the advantages, the favor of sonship. This is revolutionary in Paul's day. So, brothers and sisters, we, together, are heirs with Christ. Romans 8.29 calls Christ the firstborn among many brethren. When God adopted us into his family, we became brothers With Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, and we became fellow heirs with him. But there is a caveat if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. O fellow heirs of Christ, we are called to suffer and rejoice. We are called to suffer with Christ and be glorified with Christ. And oh, for that precious word, with. With Christ. With him. This speaks of the precious doctrine of the union with Christ. When God adopted us into his family, we became one with Christ. Christ is our brother, not just in glory. Christ is our brother in suffering. It was late in the summer of 1977, and Romania was under communist rule. A Baptist minister put all of his worldly affairs in order after the manner of a dying man. He was preparing for martyrdom. Joseph Sohn was arrested and imprisoned several times in Romania during the 1970s, and was charged with being a Christian minister. Each time, he underwent several weeks of intense interrogation, beatings, torture, mind games, before he was finally exiled from the country in 1981. In his book, A Theology of Martyrdom, Sohn wrote about what kept him going through those years of suffering. Sohn said, This union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I am not a lone fighter here. I am an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It is not my suffering. I only had the honor to share his sufferings. Oh, for that incredible word, with. We are suffering with Christ. When we suffer, we share in the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter 4.13 says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Your sufferings are not merely your own. They are also the sufferings of Christ. Christian, you must also know that your sufferings are not for your harm. They are not meant to be evil upon you. The end, the purpose, the goal of our suffering is so that in order that the purpose of it is that we may also be glorified with him. Back to Joseph Sone. At one point during his ministry, Sone was to meet an officer from the secret police at a Romanian hotel. The communist officer had committed to silencing Soane's ministry by offering him a secular job in exchange for the promise that Sone never preached the gospel again. Turning down the job spelled at least hard time in a prison camp. It may actually mean execution. Sone met with the man and without flinching, turned down the job. Sone says, when the secret police officer threatened to kill me, to shoot me, I smiled, and I said, Sir, don't you understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory? You cannot threaten me with glory. Suffering precedes glory. Glory follows suffering. The order cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. The same was true for Christ. The same will be true for us. Jesus himself states in Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? Affliction, then victory. Suffering, then glory. Scripture connects the two together. John Calvin says, there is to be understood a twofold truth in these words that Christians must suffer many troubles before they enjoy glory and that afflictions are not evils because they have glory annexed to them. Take heart, brothers and sisters, because in this life you have suffering, but it is so that you will also have glory. Right now, Jesus is your brother in suffering, but one day he will be your brother in glory. And we owe all of this to our brother, Jesus Christ. In his book, Each for the Other, Marriage as it was Meant to Be, Brian Chapel writes about two brothers who decided one day to play on the sandbanks on the edge of the river in his hometown. Chapel writes, because our town depends on the river for commerce, dredges, which are huge machines, regularly clear its channels of sand and deposit it in great mounds beside the river. Nothing is more fun for children than playing on these mountainous sand piles. And few things are more dangerous. While the sand is still wet from the river's bottom, the dredges dump it on the shore. The piles of of sand dry with rigid crusts that often conceal cavernous internal voids formed by the escaping water. If a child climbs on a mound of sand that has such a hidden void, the external surface easily collapses. Sand from higher on the mountain then rushes into the void, trapping the child in the sinkhole of loose sand. This is exactly what happened to the two brothers as they raced up one of these larger mounds. When the boys did not return home for dinner, their parents, family, and neighbors organized a search crew. They found the younger brother. Only his head and shoulders protruded from the mound. He was unconscious from the pressure of the sand on his body. Searchers began digging frantically. When they cleared the sand to his waist, he aroused to consciousness. Where is your brother? The rescuer shouted, the child replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. With the sacrifice of his own life, the older brother lifted the younger brother to safety. Brothers and sisters, this passage reminds us of whose shoulders we stand upon. We stand upon the shoulders of our brother, Jesus, the Savior, with the sacrifice of his own life lifted us to safety. It was his shoulders that bore our sin. It was his shoulders that bore the wrath of God for us. If you're not a believer here this morning, I hate to break it to you, but the Bible says that you are not a child of God. And you are not a brother of Christ. One day, you will come before God not as father, but God as judge. And you will be forced to bear the full weight of the fury of God's wrath upon your own shoulders. I urge you, repent now. Trust in Christ. Cast your sins upon his shoulders. Be saved and be given the right to be called a child of God. Let's pray. Father who's in heaven, how great your love for us. That you would take wretched sinners and not only save us, but bring us into your family and treat us like sons and daughters destined for glory. Lord, again, we pray for brokenness, that you would help us to grasp how deeply you love us, and how much we ought to love you. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for blessing us with adoption. We pray in the name of our brother, Jesus Christ. Amen.